Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Will Summer, and welcome to The Daily Beast Fever Dreams. I'm a politics reporter at The Daily Beast. My book on QAnon, Trust the Plan, The Rise of QAnon, and the Conspiracy that Unhinged America, will be available in February and is available for pre-order now. And I'm Kelly Weil. I am also a reporter at The Daily Beast, and I'm the author of the book Off the Edge, Flat Earthers, Conspiracy Culture, and Why People Will Believe Anything. On this podcast, we're going to take you on plunges into the sometimes hilarious, sometimes scary fanatics infecting the way that millions of Americans view the world and how they vote. Even in the aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, grifters, and influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point. Welcome back to Fever Dreams. I'm Will Summer, joined as always by Kelly Weil, joined for the final time. Kelly, you have an announcement for us, or we have an announcement to make. (laughs) We have an announcement. Will, I am living, laughing, and loving. I am seething and coping. This is the last episode of Fever Dreams. You, of course, have a big announcement. You're headed somewhere. What's up? Yes, I am headed to the Washington Post, where I'll be a media reporter covering all the kinds of things I've covered at the Daily Beast and as well as on this podcast. And plus a lot more things. I'm a big media maniac. And (laughs) I don't know if that speaks well to my credibility, but I am. I love consuming media of all kinds. And I will be reporting on it there at the Washington Post. And so relatedly, the Daily Beast is shutting down Fever Dreams. And so this is our goodbye episode. It's been real. Well, just like, honestly, well, first of all, I think you're officially off the Daily Beast payroll. So I think you get like one or two free defamations in this episode. If you want to maybe say something libelous on our dime, now is your time. But in all seriousness, this pod was your and Swin's baby. And it's been just really cool for me to be able to come on board and riff with you guys. And yeah, it's been a dream. It's been a fever dream. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, we'll do some goodbyes here. I mean, as you said, I mean, the pod started with Swin. You did a fabulous job taking over and filling that seat. I mentioned this before, but when I would be out on my book tour, once again, that's Trust the Plan available now. People would, they'd be like, yeah, yeah, you're all right. But but let's talk about Kelly. Where did she get that great broadcast voice and all this stuff? And I was happy to do it. And so look, a lot of people to thank the listeners. This thing has really resonated with people in a way I did not anticipate. People liked it. And I think that's fabulous. After I announced I was going to the post, people were saying, what's going to happen to Fever Dreams? What's going to happen to Fever Dreams? And so sorry to everyone who I ignored <laughs> as we waited to make this announcement. But I appreciate your enthusiasm. Yeah, Kelly, do you want to make some thanks as well? Yeah, absolutely. I have to underscore that because our listeners are just the absolute bomb. It's been awesome getting all of the fresh hell recommendations from your DMs, your emails. You guys are in honestly weirder swamps than us sometimes. And I've just really, really loved that correspondence. Beyond that, this podcast wouldn't be possible without our producers, Jesse and Seamus. I mean, really, you don't know how many weird digressions we have, how many incidents where a cat comes into the room where there's a you know crying baby in the background and they somehow take all of that and they swap it into something that folks think is listenable so huge thanks to jesse and james yeah it, i just want to say i mean jesse has worked with 
some of the most the bad boys of the music business, people like Fred Durst. But I think we offered him his greatest challenge. <laughs> so we really appreciate that. <laughs> um, finally, obviously, all our Daily Beast guest hosts and other people who filled in when people were out on various leaves. Finally, our many guests. My wife was watching The Mindy Project recently, which features a famous comedian and sort of professional oaf, Ike Barinholtz. And I was able to say, hey, that guy was the first guest on Fever Dreams. So what a journey it's been. Kelly, what are some of your favorite Fever Dreams memories? I really feel like we're, like we're dying or we're being like buried with the podcast. They're going to enter us. No, um... <laughs> Throw the Yeti mic on top. That's right. That's right. Bury me with my Bluetooth headphones. No, there are so many great Fever Dreams episodes. These are, it's just fun recording this. It's fun wading into these weird worlds. One of my favorite episodes, just looking back, has been learning about the Liver King from the QAnon Anonymous boys. It's just something that's kind of lived in my nightmares for about, uh, what, a year now. More recently, I loved the episode with Kat Avukazela from Media Matters. She came on and talked about how things weren't looking too good for old Tucker Carlson. And Tucker Carlson fans actually sent that episode kind of viral by saying that, of course, everything was great with Tucker. And what do you know about 10 days later, he was fired. So it's always been a trip. I've loved our guests. And yeah, I'll miss you in the DMs. So many great topics we covered. I mean, the Cucks box, the attempt to reinvent the internet with just an awful name, the anti-woke bank, all the others are the woke banks, the anti-woke bank where people had sex on Zoom calls and, and hey, look, I mean, it was in the name. They weren't woke. And a couple of Fever Dreams stories, the ways Fever Dreams have played out in my own life. I was doing a job interview at a major publication and the guy said, wow, I was just driving back from the shore and I just blitzed through fever dreams. But all the things he was interested in were the Swin things when Swin somewhat inexplicably decided we were also a podcast about Hollywood and we would have these directors on it. Oh my God. Well, there's so many times Swin would always, he has this incredible backlog of Hallmark movie memories and I've never seen a single one. (laughs) So it's like, yeah, all right, all right. I mean, this guy was like, I really loved when you had the Seinfeld writer who invented Festivus. And I was like, this is a job for an to be an investigative reporter that's swins thing and also like do you know what my podcast is supposed to be about theoretically and then finally there's also an episode where we traditionally record the main segment and then we take a break and we record the interview and my house was really starting to smell like fish or like burning plastic and i was like in between that break i was like i gotta get to the bottom of this and then i opened up my electrical fuse box and it was on fire and so swin generously did the interview as the fire department came and put out the fire and stopped my house from burning down. And so that's just the kind of teamwork we had here at Fever Dreams. Kelly, do you have anything else to say on this topic right now? No, only that I had the opposite issue and I had a flood in my house when we recorded. So I think those two things neutralize each other. Completely normal pod. The earth was out to destroy this podcast. It was not meant to be. I'm glad we were able to do it for two years. And once again, just really grateful for all the listeners out there. Okay, should we move on to our first topic? Yeah, absolutely. All right, Kelly, what do you have for us? Oh, man. Well, so, well, in a graver note, we had another incident this weekend where a Hitler fanboy shot up a mall in Texas. Now, this isn't even surprising anymore. These days, when you talk about a neo-Nazi mass shooting, you have to specify which state and date because it just happens so goddamn often in this country that really does not seem to have any invested interest in making a change. Despite this not being surprising, The right has uh, spent the entire weekend pushing this narrative that somehow this is a false flag shooting. Now, to recap, folks, the uh, shooter is Mauricio Garcia. He's 33. He's accused of killing eight people and injuring a whole lot more in Allen, Texas at a shopping mall. And his social media is literally filled with 
years of explicit neo-Nazi screeds, right? He's had Hitler's smiley face as his avatar since like 2020. And in those screeds, he expresses admiration for a lot of Fever Dreams regulars, right? The Nick Fuentes, Libs of TikTok, Daily Stormer, Tim Poole. This guy, I mean, he really just ticks all the boxes of massive incel character with a literal swastika tattoo and Nazi SS bolt tattoos. And because of this, law enforcement came out really early being like, yeah, this guy is really extreme on social media. We think that might be a cause. Despite that, as soon as his name and that statement came out, we had a huge wave of right-wing commentators who seemed to have some vested interest in saying that this was not an incident of right-wing terrorism. Well, first we heard that he can't be a white supremacist because his name is Mauricio Garcia. And there are a lot of things you can say about that, right? One that, hey, race is complicated and it's socially constructed. And there are plenty of people like many of the Proud Boys who are people of color who sometimes align themselves with white supremacists because it happens to serve their interests. Yeah, I mean, this is just one of those things. Where you, the Proud Boys are a great example where people would say, how can you say the Proud Boys are racist? They're run by this guy named Enrique Tarrio, which is just, number one. Yeah, that's why he's in charge. right? I mean, so it's like, well, I don't know. I agree. It's weird. Well, I mean, it, he's got the swastika tattoo to prove it in the case of this guy. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you can go into it from a very academic way and talk about race as a construction, but there's an easier way into this. And this guy literally says he's a white supremacist. He sees himself as basically white. And I think to that end, a lot of extremists don't really care about nitpicking the details of race. They care about being more powerful than other people, about being able to exert violence on other people, which for this guy, Nazism and a shitload of guns was clearly a draw. So after this guy's social media comes out where it says I'm literally a Nazi, people say, Elon Musk had to pivot a little bit. And now their tactic is, is implying that, okay, well, maybe this guy posted those things, but this is all part of a psyop. Maybe it's a false flag. Yeah, it is. I mean, this shooting, I mean, along with the tragedy of it and just the sense that we're sort of stuck in this loop as a country was notable to me because I felt the response to it. I felt like this idea that every shooting is a false flag. I mean, you, you go back to Sandy Hook, obviously, the, the most famous case where you had someone like Alex Jones claiming it was a false flag. And that was like still pretty. That was a marginal belief among you relatively mainstream Republicans. I mean, that was like something that Alex Jones was pushing. And even then, you had people within InfoWars, we know now, saying, like, oh, I don't know about this one. Whereas now, I mean, people on the right are really just open. They're like, oh, it's a false flag. It's a false flag. It's a psyop. Yeah, absolutely. It's automatic and it's reflexive in a way that I feel like is a little bit new. I mean, let's break down some of the things that people are saying, right? When it came out that this guy posted pictures of, again, his literal swastika tattoo, people were like, I think that tattoo looks a little too fresh. Isn't that suspicious? And it's like, well, yeah, when people take pictures of their tattoos, be they Nazi tattoos or otherwise, they tend to do it when they're pretty fresh. You don't want to show off their new ink. There's been a really, I think, kind of disgusting campaign against Eric Toller. He's the Bellingcat researcher who actually found this. Absolute legend. Also, just this pod, uh, defend Eric Toller at all costs. <laughs> He's a cool, cool guy. Brilliant, brilliant. <laughs> found this profile on a Russian social media site. Yeah, great find. But rather than maybe contemplate what that profile suggests about the shooting. They're like, oh, Eric Toller, well, he must be a CIA operative. So they are very much shooting the messenger here. And what they're doing with the social media page, it's a site called OK.Ru. They're calling it a PSYOP. This is from the brilliant researcher Cat Turd. He calls it one of the most obvious PSYOPs ever. 
<laughs> another OSINT expert. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And now, what's their evidence, even though this is a plant? This is a CIA plant for undisclosed reasons. Really sure. They're saying, why is he using a social media site where he doesn't have any followers? And to that, I say, look at the average Twitter blue subscriber right now. They've all got like 13 followers average. Like, it's not a big deal. I have never seen, yeah, I mean, it, it, the whole Twitter blue thing, I've never seen people with such low follower counts. I'm like, damn, you got like 30, like, you got to even just spam, you got to collect more than that. I mean, yeah, as you said, I mean, the cat turd, the most obvious psyop ever. And the other thing to note here is, I mean, these are all people being boosted by Elon Musk, which provides them with more relevance than they might otherwise have. Ian Miles Chong, very favorite Fever Dreams character, someone I remain fascinated by, a sort of Malaysian blogger who plays American identity politics like a piano and just goes, boop, 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 rise, rise people up. All these people are saying, hmm. Like, frankly, the shooter here is he's shaping up to be sort of a very classic far-right extremist with his references. And then everyone's saying, hmm, none of this makes sense to me. Like, you have Elon Musk tweeting, someone was posting that the shooter had mentioned lips of TikTok and Tim Pool, and Elon Musk tweets, this gets weirder by the moment. Does it? It seems pretty straightforward. And this also is far from the first time we've had something like this happen. So it's very odd that we're seeing this over and over from a similar group of actors. And people are saying, this is so twisted. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I do actually want to like, let's take this conspiracy theory at face value. Like, what is it actually alleging? Is it that the CIA has done this mass shooting so that libs of TikTok will look bad? Is that what it is? Is it the CIA doing this mass shooting so that it will tip the scales and suddenly we're going to seize everyone's guns and we're going to send the patriots to FEMA camps via Black Hawk helicopters? Like, no, we have mass shootings more days than not, I think. And that certainly hasn't done anything. So it's a real reputational laundering exercise that's going on right now. And it's just so funny because so many of these accounts, so many of the Tim Pool fanboys say are really enthusiastic about violence. So talk about civil war and ominous talks of recriminations against the left. And well, why is it surprising to you when somebody does that? Yeah, you have a lot of these characters who will say, we are the last, we're the moderates. There needs to be all these harsh crackdowns on um, trans people or drag shows or all these things. And, but then after us, there's going to be, I mean, there's going to be violence for sure. And that's when they don't say that they'll be doing it themselves. And then suddenly people act on that rhetoric and they say, whoa, this is a twisted twisted up psyop we had nothing how could this possibly happen one thing i want to key in here is like someone who's been getting a lot of attention for calling it a psyop is someone called the redheaded libertarian and i have to say i feel like there are like eight different characters who are all like their deal is that they're libertarian and redheaded i swear i mean this is just a trope where it's kind of like just this person who says like the libertarian gal and then people go oh well she said it it makes sense to me so it's it, interesting twitter type i'm keying in on there so kelly what's the large your takeaway here? I mean, what's your take on this? I mean, I think even over the course of this podcast, right, the idea that violent incidents are false flags, I think has really metastasized from being a really fringe thing. Like we mentioned, Alex Jones tried this after Sandy Hook. And yeah, it did have followers. It did have subscribers. I remember going to a Flat Earth conference in like 2018 and people were all in on the Sandy Hook was a hoax thing, but they were only citing Alex Jones. He was really kind of the hero who was pushing that. And it's gone from being this thing that, although it did garner Alex Jones some attention for a while, it also made him more of a pariah. It made him more of a fringe figure who was hemmed in. It got him sued to hell and back. And rather than learn from that, people have adopted and they've mainstreamed that tactic. And now 
I think there's this reflexive urge to see a terrible incident, especially one that maybe doesn't look too good for your political leanings. I think if people feel the urge to maybe do some defense work for a neo-Nazi, maybe they should think about why exactly they feel some affinity for that person. But it's gone from, again, this fringe tactic to something that people just do almost on impulse on Twitter. And I think that's a real worry. It might honestly speak to the fact that we just came out of a very conspiratorial presidency where a lot of these people still believe that Trump is the rightful president. I mean, when you can believe a fraud of that scale, why wouldn't one of these shootings be something that you could just dismiss offhand? It is a strange thing because, I mean, to have all these prominent conservative figures just saying, well, just within 48 hours of this incident, we can, I mean, this is a psyop, this is all fake. I mean, if you really believe that, like, how do you operate in the world? Because, I mean, the reality is they don't believe it. But, like, because if you think, for example, let's just say the FBI or the CIA is whipping up people to do mass murder, that is, I mean, look, I'm not saying the CIA bunch of great guys, right? I mean, they get into shady stuff, but it's usually several scales below this. <laughs> I mean, it's a, the idea that, oh, well, we all know that this is just what they do. I mean, it's just so crazy to me. And the reality is, as I said, I mean, I really don't think the majority of these people pushing this believe this at all, but it's that it's become kind of a, just a common rhetorical gambit is just wild to me. Absolutely. Yeah. If somebody criticized libs of TikTok or Tim Pool, this is an acceptable rhetorical tool that they can just pull out and say, oh, it's a false flag. You can't insult somebody who rips off TikTok streams or somebody who does YouTube live shows or whatever. It's just completely an acceptable part of the discourse now. All right. And for our next segment, we're joined by comedian and phone prankster, Chris James. Chris has been on the podcast before. His YouTube channel is not even a show. He's a funny, funny guy. Chris, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me on. Just I've had a pretty quiet week. I'm just excited to just sort of talk about the news and whatnot. Yeah, so the reason we wanted to have you on, I mean, obviously, is that your recent prank call to Alex Jones using an AI-generated Tucker Carlson has really stirred things up. Can you walk us through what your idea was there and how it played out? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't... I don't really... I guess I'm not super thoughtful, maybe like some people. So I don't really think stuff through that well. I just, I got a hold of this voice. I mean, I didn't get a hold of it. It's a public thing. There's a bunch of these voice AIs. I won't say the one I use, but whatever. It's one of, I'll say 11 Labs, it's called. I've been using it for a while now, a month or so, mostly to do silly things like call shows with a Gorka sounding voice, complaining about the issues, all the issues have to do with him having a big head. And then just sort of Ben Shapiro voices calling in Mike Huckabee. And I've had people hosting, like I had Fucker Carlson hosting. So it's Tucker Carlson AI and then a cartoon image of him animated or whatever. Hey, brother, how you doing? Hey, Alex, it's Tucker. Do you have a minute to talk? Absolutely. You busy right now, or you got a second to talk? I just jumped out. What's going on, brother? You busy right now, or you got a second to talk? No, no, I just just left a meeting with my wife. Go ahead. I was thinking we could do a show together where we're topless, and we suck each other's nipples and sort of play with them a bit. It would be a comment on gender roles, sort of a funny parody thing. Alex, they took my bobie tie. What the fuck, man? Alex, they took my bobie tie. What the fuck, man? You got to go to actually me. Did my number not come up? And I don't know. I just was like, like I said in another interview, I was taking a crap. 
sorry to be rude about it, but that's the truth. I was literally making a dookie. And I just like sat there and thought to myself, I was like, I wonder if I have these phone numbers. I wonder if I called somebody with the voice AI and the phone number, if I could actually make them think it was a person. But I'll be honest, I did not think it would work. Even for a second, I didn't think it would work. So you call Alex Jones, right? You've like no idea how this is going to work. I mean, I just want to know mechanically how this works. Do you have like a soundboard of uh, Tucker Carlson audio and you're like, beep, boop, beep, boop. Like, how did you make that happen? Well, you program it like so I program it into 11 labs. I could make a Tucker Carlson voice say any single thing I wanted it to say. I mean, I could do it with a lot of voices. And so I pre-program it. So I made it. That's the reason a lot of people are disappointed by the prank, which I totally understand because it got hyped up so much and it was never going to deliver. But that's the thing. I did not expect it to work. So I did not it's my fault. I should have had more stuff ready, but I didn't. I assumed when I started saying the stuff about sucking each other's nipples or whatever, I assumed that was the end of the call. That was just going to be a short thing. But he bizarrely responded to that. Like, oh, yeah, that's funny, man. You know, do it on Infowars or whatever. Like it was, I was sort of taken aback by it, but I didn't really have any other stuff. I, yeah, I just had like five, six clips or something like that, that I was going to sort of test it out. But the thing that surprised me, I guess, the most is I assumed when I spoofed the number to Tucker's that it would just come up as a bunch of numbers in a row. Like I didn't think that it would actually come up as Tucker or whatever. And it apparently did because he answered, hey, buddy, what's going on or whatever. And right when he said that, I was kind of like, what the fuck? Like, oh, my God, like this guy really thinks he's talking to Tucker. And I sort of, yeah, I was sort of didn't even know what to do at that point. So, yeah, the way the call works out is you use this audio about sucking each other's nipples. I mean, the, <laughs> the prank call lifestyle. And Alex is, yeah, he's sort of, he, oh, yeah, great idea. And he figures out pretty quickly that it's AI generated. And then you, were you surprised with how quickly he cottoned on to that? No, I was not. What do you mean? No. It, how could you not realize that it was a, a this guy who is in the midst of dealing with this like massive change, like he's been fired from Fox News. He's got all those like legal issues and stuff like the idea that you would believe for one second that the person would call up and say, hey, we should do a show where we lick each other's nipples. I think even and honestly, I also you can hear on the call. I play the same clip over and over again. So it's like, it's literally the identical clip. Like they took my Bobby tie, which is, a, again, that's a specific reference to my channel. So that's not that specifically. It was just meant, I never expected this to go further than the people who watch my channel, really. So it was just kind of inside baseball stuff. But no, I was not surprised at all. I was actually very surprised that it took him as long as it did, really. Like, and he was still kind of hesitant. Oh, you know, it sounds like you, but this AI is so good or whatever. Like even after the nipples thing, he said, hey, what's going on, man? Like he was still thinking he's having a conversation with Tucker Carlson. So no, I would say the opposite. So after you tweeted that you had carried out this prank call, I mean, it, this got a lot of attention. I mean, I was a little surprised because, I mean, you do so many funny prank calls and you get prominent people on the right often, but this one really blew up. So what happened after that? Yeah, I think it blew up because of the AI stuff, I think. And then also, I guess, Tucker Carlson's in the news and stuff now. But yeah, I was super surprised. I did the same thing I always do. If I do a prank like this, I'll tweet about it. Hey, maybe some people retweet it or whatever, get a couple of new people a little bit outside of 
my little bubble or whatever will watch it. But yeah, I don't know who picked it up and who it's tough to say on Twitter when it starts going wild. I don't know who is responsible for it going. So I know Hassan, the Twitch streamer, he brought it up on his stream and talked about it. But yeah, I'll be honest with you. I was not, I mean, it's great to have new people watching the channel, but It was not what I was hoping for. It was not what I was looking for. I wasn't trying to have it be some big thing in the news. I think if my channel gets to be too high profile, it becomes almost impossible for me to do it. So I was surprised. And then, of course, his reaction amplified it. And I mean, we don't have that much time, but I don't know how I feel about it because he clearly was playing it up for content. He clearly realized, I mean, he got angry about it. He tried to get me to come on his show aggressively. Like he was sending me all these messages and calling and saying, come on my show. I'll come on your, he said this to me, he said, I'll come on your show tomorrow. And I was like, you're already going to be on my show tomorrow. You fucking idiot. What do you, you don't know how my show works. It's not, it's not, I don't have guests on like that. But yeah, I think it was when I sort of said, Hey, I'm not coming on your show. I have no interest in doing that, that he just sort of said, okay, we got to get something out of this. And he started calling for my arrest and shit. Like not, he wasn't serious. And that's what made me feel conflicted. Cause I was like, this guy's mining this for content now. And he's, I don't think it makes him look good, but he's still utilizing it to make some fuck money or whatever, which made me feel a little bit gross. And that's why I so I posted up about it. But I decided that, hey, like, I'm going to make a bit more money this month off of this particular thing. And so instead of just taking that money for myself, I'm going to take the extra money that I have and donate it to a cause that I think is important to particular individual, but it's the daughter of a the principal who's killed in Sandy Hook, who's dealing with some issues medically. And that's actually something somebody reached out to me and said, hey, I know everything that's going on. I think this would be would be a good place to send money. And so that's what we're going to do. Hell yeah. Well, hey, listen, you're on here on the last episode of our show. Is there any way that we can record our voices and just like maybe AI a couple more episodes? Is, is that possible? <laughs> be careful. Be careful what you wish for. I, I, I mean, I've done it to my friends. Many, I have a couple of friends who have a Twitch stream called the Go Off Kings, and I can make perfect. I could make them do an entire podcast. Like, real. I've thought about it before. We were going to do it as a joke. Like, have a whole show that is like a podcast that is 45 minutes long and it is just entirely AI-based. Well, Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Where can people find your work? I don't know. You, you can find it on YouTube, not even a show. But you don't have to go there. Enough people have gone there. <laughs> you just keep it with it. Or you go there, but just don't tell anybody about it, maybe. <laughs> All right, dude, listeners, don't tell anyone about this interview. Keep quiet. All right, well, Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me on. I'm sorry to hear that it's the last episode. I love you guys. So, yeah, I'm excited to see what y'all are doing next, for sure. Thank you. All right, Will, we have the rare doubleheader interview this week. That was our first interview. Who's our second? Well, our second interview this week is with the one man who, like us, forever bears the mark of hosting this podcast. It's Asuin Soupsang. He's back. He demanded to come back for the final episode. Swin, of course, Few Dreams listeners may know, was our first host here. He's also a senior politics reporter at Rolling Stone. He's got a lot to talk about. And boy, does he like talking about it. But we'll be talking about the end of the podcast, but more forward-looking as well. He'll be talking. He's done some great reporting recently. 
on Tucker Carlson's firing from Fox News and just generally what's up with the Trump campaign. So I'm excited to speak with him. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Fever dreams like all Daily Beast journalism exist because of the generous support of our subscribers. The people who pay for access to Daily Beast reporting and who are, quite frankly, our favorite people on the face of the planet. Want to get in on all the action? Join now and get unlimited access to Beast reporting, exclusive ad-free newsletters, and our undying appreciation. Head to feverdreams.thedailybeast.com to sign up. Our final Fever Dreams guest ever, the guy who kicked it all off, Asawin Soupsang of Rolling Stone. Swin, can you believe it? The last episode. You only booked me because Barack Obama fell through with the last (laughs) Well, no, he wanted to come on. Obama, Meghan Markle, all these celebs. But I said, no, it's got to be Swin. So you couldn't swing Prince Harry, is what you're saying. So Swin, we're talking about the end of the podcast. What's a favorite Fever Dreams memory of yours? Okay, well, I'm going to do a deep cut. It's something so deep that our listeners, there's no way they could have heard it unless they hacked into the Daily Beast mainframes. Remember when we were doing pilot episodes to prove to all the suits that, yes, we should get this podcast off the ground for public consumption? They were just like, well, it's a pilot episode. Just talk about whatever you want. Just fill segments with hot air or whatever. So I told Will, we got to do a segment on the politics of the classic Fox TV show, The O.C., do you remember this one? Did we do it? We, we did it. We did it. We recorded it for the pilot episode. We did. We talked about the politics of the OC and how it's so strange that they pick on Ryan for being the kid from the wrong side of the tracks and like the poor kid from the violent crime background at the broken home when every house in the extremely wealthy and affluent OC is all like white teenagers committing violent crimes, carjacking, setting things on fire. And it's just like if the OC as it exists in the TV show, the OC actually existed in the real world, it would have a worse murder rate than Chicago and Minneapolis and would be committed all by like extremely wealthy white teenagers. So we talked about the crime politics of the OC, but our listeners never got to hear us like go deep on that because uh, that one got locked away. Yeah. Locked away in a vault. I think they put that in a supermax prison. Just a recording of that with El Chapo. So, Swin, you're at Rolling Stone now. You have been reporting on Tucker Carlson, etc. What's going on with his ouster? You had this article about this oppo file Fox supposedly has on him. And then curiously, right after that article came out, all these leaks started coming out about Tucker. Media Matters ran some unflattering Tucker off-camera video. The Daily Beast, and I will say, I can't speak for our sourcing here. I have no idea on that. But various unredacted text messages came out. So what is afoot here? Well, I'm not going to speculate on the sourcing of any other news outlets. I mean, obviously, there is tea about Tucker Carlson and his time at Fox News that is being spilled right now in the public domain from various anonymous sourcing. But what we were able to confirm with our reporting it stone between Diana Falzoni and me is that over the years at Fox, 
Tucker has butted heads with the Fox News executive class, uh, perhaps most prominently and mainly so with a woman named Irina Briganti, who is a notorious communications and public relations enforcer and czar at Fox News, has been for a long time, was a top lieutenant to Roger Ailes back before he completely flamed out and was disgraced and was kicked to the curb. So over the years, Briganti and her operation and other executives have amassed what one source derisively referred to as an oppophile to us on Tucker Carlson. The existence of this informal gathering of information and alleged dirt on Tucker was confirmed to us by a variety of sources in and out of the Fox empire. And basically, it's a compendium of workplace complaints, internal uh, conflicts, various degrees of alleged dirt, allegations of that Tucker helped create a toxic work environment, and different tidbits of documentation, whether that's in written or other media format. So I think some of Fever Dreams listeners, I, I had to catch myself, I almost said our listeners. They're your listeners. They haven't been my listeners for a long time. They're your listeners for the day. Yeah, really, they're all our listeners and our friends. Well, yeah, absolutely. And I'll be the host emeritus for this edition. Anyway, it may strike some of the Fever Dreams listeners, at least at first, who aren't up to their eyeballs as some of us are in terms of reporting on cable news, particularly Fox News and Fox Business, that a company would be doing this not just to its talent, but to the guy who was at the time their guy, their star, the top rated host. Why are you compiling supposed blackmail material on the guy who was supposed to be the base of your network? Well, the funny thing is, like, if I told you this were unique to Tucker Carlson, I would be lying. This is a practice that Fox News for many years has employed against the upper crust of its on-air talent, whether it's contributors, on-air personalities, or their top-rated primetime hosts, to keep them in line, whether they are still working at the network or not working at the network, whether they've been fired or departed on other terms. While I was the Daily Beast, you guys' current stomping ground, years ago, we reported on emails that we obtained at Verified that showed that Irina Briganti and her operation were basically rat-fucking Fox News hosts and Fox Business hosts like Stuart Varney and Bill O'Reilly. Bill O'Reilly, while he was still an employee at the network before he was fired, to basically try to plant negative stories on them in the press as revenge against them for either real or imagined infractions against the network. So to say that for a long time in Fox News, there has been almost a Stasi-type atmosphere to the way they conduct themselves towards their top-rated and most high-profile and influential hosts and talent isn't that much of an exaggeration. And now it's something that has been turned to one degree or another, it seems, on Tucker Carlson. So normal company, normal workplace. The listeners who are hearing this who are fortunate enough to be in a situation where they don't work at a place like that should be very grateful that they do not. It reminds me of Scientology. Like, they've got the little dossiers on everybody ready to go. Yes. Um, oh, my God. Oh, my God. That is a way better analogy than comparing it to the other major cable news networks. I cannot speak for places like Newsmax TV or OAN. I've not done enough deep dives under their HRs or public relations departments. But look, I don't think any of us here are naive enough to think that executives and Time Warner or NBC Universal are Pollyanna about this shit. People at that level at whatever networks or companies calculate and act in ruthless ways from one time or another for certain reasons, blah, 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 blah. But in terms of the way how 
Fox News and their public relations department have acted for many years. You can ask any quote unquote insider in the cable news industry. It does stand out head and shoulders in its vindictiveness, in its dirty, trickster, political rap fucky style of waging like kind of like covert warfare or subversion. It does stand out in that respect as unique among the big three cable news networks. I don't think that is a controversial thing to say. So, Swin, you also have other reporting, not just about the file on Tucker, but other Fox News hosts talking about their own anxieties, that they might be like the ones who are canned next. I mean, what's the vibe like at Fox? Are there witch hunts going on right now over these leaks? Like, what's the feeling there? That's part of it. But there are hosts like Fox Business's Maria Bartiromo and Fox News's Judge Janine, two of our favorites, if I recall correctly, who have been actively and privately telling close friends and confidants and colleagues that they believe that they could easily be next. Now, whether that happens or happens imminently, I think remains to be seen. But we did confirm from our sourcing, including within FNC, that in recent weeks, there have indeed been high-level discussions about what to do with Maria Bartiromo and to put it diplomatically about her future with the company. So as with something as internally traumatic as an abrupt and sudden firing of Tucker Carlson, it is only natural that it creates a cycle of top talent at the two channels trying to figure out if they're going to be next. Uh, that, that comes with territory of this kind of stuff. And in terms of what you were alluding to earlier, like certain individuals and high-level executives at the network trying to figure out where some, not all, but some of the leaks are coming from, if you talk to people there, whether they're executive level or on-air talent, who are used to quietly talking to reporters who they would not want to get caught dead talking to, if you speak to them, you'll notice that in the past couple of weeks or so, they've been doing things like entering fake names into their phones of reporters on the outside they regularly have conversations with. So in case they're in the makeup chair or in a meeting with other executives and the phone happens to be out, a name doesn't come up like, Oh, Mr. So-and-so media reporter from the New York Times. So if they weren't employing that kind of offset before, there is a higher level of that now. <laughs> well, I mean, that is some real low-down cheater moves. <laughs> Just put someone in under a different name. Swin, do you have an idea of what your alias might be in the Fox host's phone? I have not asked. I need to ask. I hope it's something that makes me sound super exotic, like an Irish name of some kind. Interesting. <laughs> well, Swint, you also, of course, covered Trump world. First of all, what is the Trump campaign's sense of Ron DeSantis these days? I mean, I feel like it's become conventional wisdom. It so quickly went from Ron DeSantis, up and comer, watch out for Ron, to like, Ron is getting killed out there. So what is the Trump world take on Ron? I mean, how concerned are they about him? Well, before I get into that, well, this is a two-way street. I haven't talked to you guys, and definitely not in this context in a long time, of course, I have listened to you guys from far as an avid and loyal Fever Dream subscriber. But I want to hear what you guys think first, and then then I'll give you my answer. Like, you guys have been observing Ron DeSantis for the past year, just as I have. Um, Up close and personal. We've been keeping track of his every move. And I will say this to Ron DeSantis. A lot of people took that clip. I think he's in Japan, and his face looks crazy, right? But I will say this to him. He was ill-served because the version of that clip that went around, there's like an abrupt cut. And so, look, did his face look weird? Of course. But it's kind of like they, they cut it from normal face to suddenly like, ah, right? And I think if we'd seen the oh, whole Mr. video, Bill I think Mitchell we would have seen here. 
<laughs> we would have seen it getting increasingly grumpy. By the way, actually, as long as we're on the Bill Mitchell topic, people may remember Bill Mitchell, 2016, number one Trump super fan. He was like, the polls are all wrong. Trump will be our eternal president. And then he was right. He has kind of a silver appearance, kind of a Max Headroom vibe. Point being, he now has jumped off of the Trump train and he's saying, Ron DeSantis is more electable. We got to back DeSantis. And I asked him, I was like, Bill, please let me interview you about going from Trump super fan to now Trump hater, Ron DeSantis loyalist. And he said, well, okay, if you retract all these negative articles about me. And I said, well, I won't be doing that. So that interview, unfortunately, you should, did not dude, happen. You should have taken the deal. We horse trade all the time, <laughs> this dirty, murky business of ours. You know what's the funny thing about that? I was reliably told a while ago that Trump noticed that Bill Mitchell had fallen out with him because... He gets briefed from time to time on the influencers who are with and who are against him. And I mean, I'm not going to make the argument that Trump lays awake at night thinking, oh, God, what is Bill Mitchell saying about me? It's not that degree of influence. But in terms of a guy like Bill Mitchell being like, he's off the Trump train, sir, that has been briefed to Trump in the past couple of months. (laughs) Talk to me about the influencer briefing. I mean, what, what does that look like? Well, that looks like Trump, obviously, whether they're lawmakers on Capitol Hill, top rate hosts on places like Fox News or Newsmax, or just people who have hundreds of thousands, if not millions of followers on Twitter or other popular websites. Are they for DeSantis? Are they for Trump? Did they used to be for Trump? And now they're kind of drifting towards, oh, I don't know about this guy, especially after the 2022 midterms. And when it comes, especially to the category of the drifters, he will get semi-periodic updates on that from some of his close advisors because he's not the only one on Team Trump monitoring who he is for and who is against and who is kind of drifting from the Trump camp. Is he saying, tell me, Dan, do we still have Cat Turd? Is he still with <laughs> us? I'm not sure if I would write the dialogue like that if I were to dramatize the scene, but it is not entirely unlike that. We've seen photos publicized of him inviting like libs of TikTok for intimate sit-down dinners at Mar-a-Lago. Like, this is a guy who either cares himself or has been convinced to care by some of his own top political counselors to take these seriously and realize that, okay, it may not be the most important terrain to try to beat DeSantis during the 2024 primary, but it is something where we have to make sure we want up him and allow ourselves not to get outflanked in the influencer Swin, speaking of influencers, you had reporting on uh, one of our favorite characters, Laura Loomer. She was mulled as a possible Trump staffer. And I think you had the inside scoop that that actually came out of uh, Trump's own thinking that he was the one who wanted her on staff. I mean, like, what was going on in his head? then? Well, I mean, it's to psychoanalyze him a bit. It truly is often as simple as did this nutbag say something positive about me? Has he or she continued to say positive things about me? Oh, that's cool. Can we get her a job on our campaign? I mean, I don't think the well of thought and analysis that you're looking for here in terms of like, okay, how could he consider someone like Laura Loomer goes much deeper than that. I mean, they are not what I would call close friends, but Trump knows who she is. They had had private conversations from time to time. And like, Kelly, you've covered Laura Loomer way closer than I am. Like, she's one of these flood the zone, far right, bigoted extremists where I lose track of what her greatest hits are. It's that degree of like flood the zone extremism. 
Yeah, absolutely. That's why it was such an interesting choice to me, right? I mean, in some respects, I think she's a bit louder than Trump. I don't even know if that's someone he really wants around. But yeah, I think that announcement was really interesting because we mulled at the time. But the way that the story broke that, oh, Trump is considering hiring this person sounded almost like it came from the Trump campaign. People trying to get it out in front of media so that he would. Uh, oh, no, that's exactly what was happening. They were. Yeah. You, people were leaking to reports like me almost explicitly because they wanted to kill it. And also, sorry, I don't want Dodge Wills and your question from earlier about what's going on in Team Trump right now and how they're calculating against DeSantis. Something that I think that's important to keep in mind about why the campaign against DeSantis, who isn't even officially declared 2024 candidate yet, is so nasty. And the tip of the iceberg is that Trump is still very openly and explicitly mad at DeSantis, his former ally, for betraying him, for basically trying to challenge him for the crown of the GOP, when Trump is still the leader of the GOP and running for the 2024 Republican nomination, disloyal, disloyal, disloyal. Trump throws out that word all the time to describe DeSantis. And as Trump has bleated about for years on the political scene, he values quote unquote loyalty, obviously for him, very one way street loyalty above basically everything else. So this is why Trump wants the guy politically destroyed. And that stands to reason. And that's all perfectly out in the open, and there's no mistake about that. But the reason I'm saying it's the tip of the iceberg is because the antipathy and the desire and the visceral thirst for revenge and political bloodlust that Trump is directing towards DeSantis is actually something that pales in comparison to the way that some of Trump's top staffers and political advisors, how they feel towards <laughs> DeSantis, like the upper echelons of Trump's political and campaign infrastructure is not entirely, but to a what you could call inordinate degree staffed by individuals who used to be on Team DeSantis, who had hated their boss, absolutely hated him, trash talk him insane amounts to this day, and now drifted over to being exclusively on Team Trump. This includes, but is certainly not limited to, Susie Wiles, Taylor Budwick, Justin Caporale. All really solid political operative names here. <laughs> My God, they got Caporale. And so, Swena, is it fair to say these people know Ron's psychology inside and out, and now they're going to put it to use for Trump? Yes, that is certainly part of it. And they're coming to it, and most of them are coming to it with this idea of don't just destroy this guy or beat him. We need to humiliate him. Like, it's not their only motivating factor, but there is an intense desire for just an almost cartoonish level of vengeance here. And one of the things that some of them have told Trump directly is, look, we've worked for Ron DeSantis. We've seen him up close and personal on sometimes a near daily basis. He is a uniquely insecure guy, and it's easy to get into his head with like almost like frivolous bullshit. So what they told Donald Trump is keep mind fucking him as much as you can, because he is someone who is uniquely attuned to getting in one's head with that stuff. I'll give you an example. Obviously, the Daily Beast is ground zero of Ron DeSantis three fingers pudding reporting. Extreme congratulations, of course, on that to my old friends and colleagues. Thank you. This is the pudding source. Thank you. <laughs> so if the main pro Romney 
super PAC came out with an ad mocking Barack Obama in 2012 about him maybe allegedly eating something with his fingers. Do you think President Obama would give two ounces of a shit? No, no, he wouldn't. He's a normal brain person. Obama, whenever you think about his policies or politics or personality, he was known for kind of having things like that roll off his back because his brain was kind of normal. When the main pro-Trump super PAC did that Social Security and Medicare and <laughs> to put a trolling related ad, that was something that seriously bothered Ron DeSantis. <laughs> so I think I could say with pretty good authority on that. So that's just one of many examples where he's kind of this magified Florida government, but also creature of the political swamp and current darling of many envoys of the Republican establishment who more so than Jeb Bush, even more so than a guy like Ted Cruz, is kind of internally hardwired by all accounts that I've heard to be able to be effectively messed with by a bully and dipshit like Donald Trump and his cronies. So that seems to be a, an important subplot in the 2024 primary carnage or whatever you want to call it that in my opinion, is quite relevant, maybe not the most relevant thing, but pretty damn relevant and will be recurring for months and months to come. <laughs> All right, Will, before we let you go, you are renowned for your takes on Lifetime movies and Hallmark movies. So because this is so far out of my wheelhouse and for all our co-hosting time, I never knew what the fuck you were talking about. Can you please <laughs> catch us up and tell us how the world of trash TV is treating you? Oh my God. Oh my God. So good. Okay. So nowadays I'm actually a little bit in the LMN, which is known as a Lifetime Move Network, which is different than Lifetime. That's important. Not very many people know that. I'm considered now a little bit more of a Menshevik than a Bolshevik because I used to be a staunch LMN loyalist and homework. Fuck you. Get out of here. But I've kind of split my time now between homework and like Lifetime movies because I'm kind of enjoying, and maybe this is because I'm now an adoptive son of the great state of Ohio, I started to really dig the yin and yang of Hallmark Channel conservatism, cultural conservatism, versus like the defund the police, far left radicalism of element. So I'm enjoying the balance of the act the two. But I will note, Hallmark Channel has, in the past couple of years, gotten quite a bit more woke Quite a bit more woke. Uh-oh. I know the, what's her name? Cameron's her last name? Kirk Cameron's her brother? She used to be on Little House. Do you guys know? Yeah, Candace Cameron. She used to do a lot of murder mystery movies for Hallmark, but she angrily left the network for like the Great America Channel, whatever it's called, because she was like, I need to go somewhere that values traditional marriage. I'm pretty sure this was a result of Hallmark. Finally, after decades of producing all of these cookie cutter romantic syrupy movies, finally was like, okay, let's feature a gay couple as the main protagonist. <laughs> She's kind of the Tucker Carlson of the Hallmark Network. She's stormed off and joined her own thing. <laughs> Except she left on her own accord. So I guess she's kind of like Megyn Kelly in this respect. So less of a Dan Bongino, more of a Megyn Kelly. But I guess my Cliffs knows version of this because I know this is not the reason you brought me back to my old Fever Dreams household to talk about this is that Fever Dreams listeners, if you're in for some cultural conservatism with your Valentine's or Easter rom-coms, definitely turn on the Hallmark if you want to understand why the police need to be defunded and why white suburbanites are the people in America you need to fear the most out of any people, that those are the people who really need to be othered 
watch some element all right well swin what a good way to go out we're so glad we slipped in some lifetime movie talk in there swin where can people find your work they can find it over at rollingstone.com and occasionally in the printed pages of rolling stone yes we still do have one of those fancy printed monthly magazines at twitter.com at swin24 for as long as that enterprise stays afloat and otherwise, shoot me a DM or shoot me an email on my Rolling Stone email account. But I love to chat with randos. Probably more so than Will, because considering our diverse <laughs> pools of coverage. All right. Well, thanks for joining us, Swin. All right. We return for one final time to the bowels of hell from whence we will return. We bring it from the bowels of hell. And after this episode, we will remain there. Once again, it's fresh hell in which Kelly gets one more truly twisted and depraved item for us to discuss. Yeah, I mean, listen, this fresh hell has to last a whole long time. So I thought I'd set us up with something a little forward looking. It's 2024 starting early. It is Trump's long awaited return to CNN. So this episode is going to drop on Wednesday, Wednesday night. Trump is doing a town hall on CNN. And okay, whatever presidential candidate goes on a major news network. But It's a bit more newsworthy than that because he has snubbed CNN since his 2016 campaign. I mean, he's not on that channel. He's bashing at his fake news. He's getting CNN staffers like barred from White House events. So this is in its way kind of significant. And if you look at his truth social, which I don't recommend anyone does, we do it for you here. But he's hyping this interview as something that he's doing to CNN. It's a bit of a favor. He says, I'll be doing CNN tomorrow night live from the great state of New Hampshire because they are rightfully desperate for those fantastic Trump ratings. Once again, they made me a deal I couldn't refuse. And then he says, could be the beginning of a new and vibrant CNN with no more fake news or it could turn into a disaster for all, including me. Let's see what happens. (laughs) That's that showmanship. I was going to say the man could sell a clip. Absolutely. Yeah. So, Kelly, I mean... Obviously, this has been controversial. People say CNN's given Trump too much airtime. On the other hand, he is obviously still a big deal guy and he's the presumptive nominee. What should we be looking for out of this town hall? Yeah, so this is going to be interesting, right? This is a Caitlin Collins is hosting. She's going to... Caitlin Collins, can I just say, first of all, I saw Caitlin Collins at the CNN brunch slash DJ Tiesto performance (laughs) two weekends ago. But Caitlin Collins, just I'll put my media reporter hat ahead... Star is ascendant. Once at the Daily Caller, writing listicles like 10 Syrian refugees who are hot enough that we would let them into the country. I'm paraphrasing the headline here, but that was the gist of the article. Now she had this feud with Don Lemon on the morning show, clearly emerged victorious from that knife fight. Don Lemon, he's out, right? She's in Rising Star. And obviously landing this town hall is only one more bit of evidence of that. So she'll be hosting. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, media reporter Will. I mean, it looks kind of like an audition, right, for a higher spot at the network. It's a big get. And obviously it is controversial, right? People don't really want to see Trump getting the red carpet from a major network. But what I think we want to flag here is like going into 2024, we're seeing a bit of a reset in Trump's media policy. And part of the reason for that is because his only presumed opponent is Ron DeSantis, who isn't very good in media. He's an awkward guy. He's getting absolutely slammed by the putting fingers allegations. So there's some good reporting out of Politico suggesting that 
Trump's trying to cast a wider net, right? He's courting NBC. He's trying to make nice with reporters and offering them flights on his plane, trying to show himself as someone who can actually talk to media, unlike DeSantis, who kind of stands a bit wooden behind the podium. And so this could be part of a broader, maybe a bit of a deja vu moment where we see exactly how the campaign trail media is willing to open up to Trump. Yeah, I think it was in that political article you're referring to, or maybe somewhere else, that DeSantis sort of made this mistake of saying, like, oh, Trump hates the media. You should hate the media and refuse to talk to the media. But no, no, no. The trick is you whip up your fans against the media. And then whenever the media doesn't put you on, you go, oh, I'm so mad about this and privately say, like, why wasn't I in Vanity Fair this week or whatever? You get very mad about it in Trump's case. And so this is a guy who lo- he loves the mainstream media. And, and so obviously back in 2016, there was, all, oh, CNN's broadcasting all of the Trump rallies live, stuff like this. And so clearly Trump, he's a guy who loves the attention. And maybe this is his attempt to grab some more of it on CNN. Yeah. And there's maybe one other point here is that Trump and a lot of Trump world are none too pleased with Fox News. Right. I mean, they perceive it now as a kind of lamestream lib outlet. They're none too pleased about the Tucker ouster, about Fox calling the election for Biden. And so there's some ways that you can read the CNN town hall as a bit of a rebuke of Fox. We are actually going to other outlets. Right. We're not just going to give Fox the exclusive Collins, Tannity's radio show or whatever. So it is, I think, interesting. He's probably trying to make nice with the media. And it comes at a moment when CNN, I think, is reassessing its approach, too. It's got new ownership. It's trying to cast a wider and more bipartisan net, trying to shake some of the reputation as being strictly liberal. So it's a match made in uh, maybe in hell. You're right that there's an interesting aspect to this, too. As you said, I mean, CNN is the relatively new era of David Zaslav and Chris Licht. They're trying to CNN's for conservatives, too. And I mean, it's no accident that it is being hosted by Caitlin Collins, who has his background in right wing media. So there's a lot to watch. Kelly, did Trump ever get back to us on having a fever dreams Trump town hall? He did. And we snubbed him. We said never on fever dreams. We have our principles, sir, and you won't come on this podcast. So that is our pledge to you, dear listeners. So in closing, with our final bit of fresh hell, as we wipe the sulfur off, once again, just thank you to everyone who listened. This has been such a joy to seem strange to given our topic today was a joy, but it really was a pleasure um, doing the podcast and hearing from listeners and, you know, kind of wormed its way into people's lives and they liked listening. Yeah, absolutely. It's not goodbye. It's we'll see you on Twitter. Yes, I was going to say you watch the skies. We'll watch the tweets. We had such an incredible time making this podcast and want to thank you for joining us each week as we explored the shifting landscape of the fringe right. To continue following the impact ultra conservatives have on the country, please tune in to The New Abnormal, where our colleagues Danielle Moody and Andy Levy talk to some of the biggest names in politics every Tuesday, Friday, and Sunday. Listen at thedailybeast.com slash podcasts or your favorite major podcast player. And thanks again for joining us on Fever Dreams. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.